This is an ABC podcast. Here am I, what a lucky guy, as the world goes floating by. In the open air without a care, five weeks in a balloon. I wouldn't trade my place today with the king of Mandalay. High and low and away we go, five weeks in a balloon. Did you know that there isn't a balloon in Jules Verne's famous novel, Around the World in 80 Days? The balloon flight was an invention of the movie version. But Jules Verne did write a novel called Five Weeks in a Balloon. Hi, I'm Miyuki Okiranta, and this is Five Days in a Balloon. Welcome to an earshot that's lighter than air. It's four in the morning in the Hunter Valley, and Lynn Gallagher's attending the Balloonatics roll call at an aloft fiesta. Uh, Jared? Yep. Uh, Turnbulls? Yep. Richard? Yep. Grant? Yo. Cambos? Yep. Thank you, Cambos, for joining us today. <laughs> Great effort. Uh, Jeffrey? Les? It's an annual event of hot air where a troop of commercial balloons and a squadron of private pilots take to the sky together. All right. Beautiful. See you out there. It's modern ballooning at its best, and it's becoming increasingly popular. To find out how, why and where it all began, Lynn jumps into a basket for a joy flight with Nicola Scaife, a balloon pilot and two-time women's world champion. Hi, I'm on the side of the It's a bit early in the morning for introductions, but these are my fellow passengers. All of us with Nicola name badges are first-timers and we're getting ready for an amazing experience. Each day for this fiesta, around 30 hot air balloons from all around the country are going to be taking to the sky. We plan to launch together at sunrise and float majestically off into the dawn. So, um, I'm just and this is Nicola with her safety briefing. Landing positions. This is what we'll do when we come into land, funnily enough. So in every compartment... As she talks, it strikes me how tiny she is. This balloon has 20 people on board. It's so large, and Nicola is so small. Uh, Does anybody have any questions? So how does such a small person operate such a big balloon? It seems like a silly question, but it goes right to the heart of modern ballooning in Australia. So as we get into the basket and those burners get going, let's ask James McCormack along for the ride. He's the son of Australia's first hot air balloon pilot. Uh, my name is James McCormack and I am a adventure writer and photographer and magazine editor. On the 4th of July 1964, a balloon took off in a paddock near Parks in New South Wales. It was Australia's first modern manned balloon flight. The material it was actually built on was, was mylar, which is a film that's just one fiftieth of a millimetre thick. Now, you, you think about that, like how thin one fiftieth of a millimetre is, and you're suspended, you know, potentially kilometres above the ground by this thing. But the way they decided to put mylar together, because it was so thin, they couldn't sew it, they used tape. So they got a sponsorship from Sellotape. And all I'm thinking is, nowadays, I think, well, isn't that, if it's sticky tape, isn't that heat sensitive? And you're in a hot air balloon, 
anyway, they, they used it and it held together and that's what they used for that first flight. We're up in the air now with that same adrenaline rush that James's father would have felt back in 1964. Ballooning in Australia, James tells me, began as a prank. His father, Terry, was a member of the Aerostat Society, a group of uni students, mostly from Sydney University's St John's College, who famously interrupted the Olympic torch relay in 1956, presenting the Lord Mayor of Sydney with a fake flame and burner. Their next trick was to involve interrupting the cricket, an ashes test, by floating a hot air balloon picnic over the SCG. But the problem was, no one had a balloon. I spoke with one of the aerostats, Terry Golding, and he was telling me that it was, it was really first principles. I mean, first of all, they had to figure out exactly how they were going to contain the hot air and, you know, obviously a balloon. And then they said, well, what's its shape? It's, it's like a ball. And then, OK, how do we attach a platform to it? And, oh, we'll have tangents coming down from the bottom of the balloon. And then they begin asking, well, how much hot air? What temperature do we need to lift this sort of thing? If the ambient air temperature is X, how much gas burning at how many BTUs do we need? And, and so on and so on. There were no do-it-yourself manuals or texts to follow, let alone the internet. And you know, it wasn't like there was even anyone in Australia they could turn to. There was no one who was figuring things out from scratch. So armed with a piece of paper and a pencil, these do-it-yourselfers changed the face of aviation in Australia and around the world. One of the people who was part of that early group of aerostats was Phil Kavanagh, who's still making balloons today. When I, when I first started ballooning was 1968, and we had a huge problem that the burners weren't powerful enough. So you could fly in any weather that you could get a balloon off the ground because the burners were, were small. Then the burners became bigger, and you could take off in wind that was positively dangerous to land in. So the deflation systems were behind things. Now, deflation systems then caught up in the early 90s, and now you've got powerful burners, powerful deflation systems, and you've got really good navigation systems with GPS and, and moving map displays, which is what we use all the time. So ballooning's become, in the last probably 10 years, has become very slick. And you would have noticed this weekend that we've been directed to go to this airport or that airport or this field or that field. And most of the people get there, except this morning when we missed and most of the other people did too. <laughs> OK, so Phil's not in our balloon. He's down on the ground. And I'll tell you later about that landing, which involved him invading a stranger's cow paddock and some of the other baskets bumping when they shouldn't. But first, let's get James's father, Terry, up in the air. He didn't even have a basket, only a platform when he took off. And the flight? It was brief. I think it was only like 10 or 15 minutes. It, it wasn't that long. They hadn't even invented a, a wicker basket. But what also was interesting was that the burner was so tiny. It was so much smaller than modern burners. And it just didn't have the... The, the lifting capabilities to take him off the ground. So the first thing that went was the sandbags. They took threw them off. And then, <clears throat> and it was kind of getting close to lifting, but not quite there. But in the end, Dad threw off his parachute and went up there minus the parachute, which, again, and you're in this crazily flimsy balloon with the 150th of a millimetre film material that it's made from, held together by sticky tape, 
and you're going you know hundreds or thousands of feet as it was back then into the air with with no shoot and i don't know it it, <laughs> it seems all a little bit crazy to me but there were actually quite massive crowds forming there again it seems astonishing to me that so many people would turn up but they were certainly reporting that perhaps as many as 3,000 people were there to watch the initial flight. And did he get down safely that day? More or less, but no one had considered the dynamics of the landing. So what happened that once the balloon actually touched ground and hit the ground, all of a sudden the weight is taken off. And so then it just shot skyward again. And then it hit, came down again. And then as soon as the 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 weight of the platform and dad was on the ground it shot skyward again and he ended up on one of the times that shot skyward losing his footing was dangling half upside down off the platform and managed to ride himself but yeah get down with <laughs> unscathed in the end obviously things have changed a lot if you exclude all commercial plane flights there are more people flying in hot air balloons today than the whole of the rest of general aviation put together so, for example, in Team Nicola, in our balloon basket, there's a family from Delhi, a combined triple birthday party celebration from Newcastle, a mum and her nine-year-old boy, and a couple from England. He didn't even know he was going flying until she woke him up at 3.30 this morning. So worth getting out of bed? Yeah, just a bit. <laughs> just a bit. I was so mad and she woke me up. I was like, Forgiven. what all time is, is it? All is forgiven. Yeah, I, I slept really badly because I was so nervous about yeah. waking him up. <laughs> I'm not really a morning person. <laughs> we are 3,000 feet. We're at 3,000 feet and ready for a group photo. The camera's hanging off the side of the balloon and Nicola works it remotely with her phone. I'll give you a bit of a countdown. Hold up, I'll just spin it just a touch. <laughs> Smile. This is the hardest part of my job, the photography. Okay, here we go. Three, two, one. Beautiful. Captured forever in the light of the burner. But Nicola isn't kidding when she says this is the hardest part of her job. It was, after all, a group photo that led to Australia's worst ballooning accident ever in Alice Springs in 1989. ABC News with Jeff Howard. This morning, investigations begin into yesterday's balloon tragedy near Alice Springs, in which 13 people died. About all I saw was, uh, when I looked up, was the balloon starting to deflate itself. And then I spun around and saw the actual balloon, the two of them actually parting, and um, the balloon that crashed down to the ground, the top of it had actually come open. Air safety investigators have flown from Darwin and Adelaide to determine exactly what happened. They're not certain how long it will be before they know the events of this morning that led to the deaths of 13 people. Well, I... I feel still positively sick about it. I still just can't believe that uh, something as horrific as that has happened in, uh, to us in Alice Springs. For 24 years, Australia held the world record for the worst ballooning disaster. The inquest into the Alice Springs accident went on for a long time, and Phil Kavanagh, balloon expert and manufacturer, was there for all of it. The action of it was that they would take photos 
from one balloon to the other. Um, remote cameras with remote controls hanging off the side weren't existing at the time, so they relied on the passengers in the other balloon being taken from this balloon. So they would take off 50 metres apart and fly up. And it was just unfortunate that the level they chose was 2,000 feet above ground level, had a very heavy wind shear. One just fell into the other in the middle of a wind shear. And it was a really unfortunate accident and very, a very unlikely accident, but it happened. But if you think about it, that was 30 years ago. Um, it's something that a lot of people still remember. So it was back in 1989. There was actually um, another fatal accident in Australia that year as well. So it was really not a, not a good time for ballooning that particular year in Australia. But we still have people like mention Alice Springs, what, 30 years later. Another bad year for ballooning was 1975. That was when James's father died, along with fellow balloonist Tony Hayes. James, remember, is the son of Australia's first modern balloonist, Terry. And when Terry took off that day around noon, it was against the advice of Phil, who'd started to suspect that flying in the afternoons wasn't a good idea due to the unstable thermal wind. But for Terry... That was just another obstacle to be overcome. They were down in Wagga in November 1975, and it had been a warm day, but they went flying in the morning and then went out again in the afternoon. And all it took was for this pin that held what was called a chimney in place to, to move the pin and the chimney open. Now, the chimney was this deflation system that was a catastrophic deflation. So by catastrophic in that sense, we mean that once the process has started, you can't stop it. So essentially, once this chimney was opened, the balloon just deflated and there were hundreds of feet up in the air and there was nothing they could do to stop it. And in the meantime, they were also being swung around wildly in this willy-willy. So the balloon caught a light. And the other pilot, Tony Hayes, he jumped out with his parachute on, but they were close enough to the ground that the chute didn't have time to deploy, and he was killed. And Dad stayed with the balloon and plummeted the ground and was, was burnt as well. So, um, yes, unfortunately, his, it was his optimism that you know, was his blessing and his curse. After this accident, those chimneys, those catastrophic deflation systems were banned and Phil was spurred on to invent the Smart Vent, a balloon braking system that's now used all around the world. It's saved hundreds of lives. The, um, the big thing in a balloon is don't touch the red one. Don't touch the red one. Don't touch the red one. Oh, this is the vent. This is the landing. It's essentially a huge plug hole in the top of the balloon. So if we're landing, that's what happens. Wow. Oh, wow. And you can close the gun if you want to. It was so quick. It is quick. Well, it's quicker to, um, if you've got a bit of adrenaline, it opens really quickly. <laughs> and usually it's like boom, boom, and it's open. And so you don't actually put much strength into that rope to no, pull it? No. It means that small people, like my pilot Nicola Scaife, can fly big balloons. Because once upon a time... Commercial ballooning relied on having big people, I mean big heavy people, um, as the pilot because they were the only ones that could open the vents. So now with the new style vents, a little person like Nicola, and she must weigh about 60 kilos or something, 50 kilos maybe, and she can fly a, a 500,000 cubic foot balloon. 
So the vent systems that we use in our balloons um, are all designed by Phil down in Sydney at the Kavanagh factory. So because of their vent systems, it's sort of revolutionised commercial ballooning in Australia um, because we can fly these really big balloons. So before the vent system that we now have, the bottom line was you really couldn't crack that vent open enough so if you're on quite a windy day or you're coming in for a windy landing you needed a lot of space for the balloon to stop because it would just keep going and going and going. So it's time to tell you about that landing. The one which happened on day three of our five-day fiesta. The one when Phil landed in the cow paddock and the baskets of some of the other balloonists bumped. It happened because a balloon in front A big commercial balloon had a smart vent and a balloon behind, a small private family balloon, didn't, making the one in front stop faster than the one behind. Are you guys all right? Yes. Oh, the passengers were still in the big basket. The commercial passengers were in the big basket, but they all got out, they were fine. Yeah. But they were in the basket when the other basket crashed in. Yeah, hit it. How many times did you bump on the ground? So the one in front stopped faster than the one behind. And now ambulances are arriving. It'll be okay, but nice to make sure, yes. We're all helping to pack up the smaller balloon so the owner can go off to emergency. It was a tough landing for everyone. I got a fell out of the But it's all okay. No bones are broken. Proving that modern ballooning is different from the old days when flights lurched from near disaster to actual disaster. For example, before dying in that balloon accident, James's father Terry had a number of minor incidents, including a broken leg. That one was at St John's College and a bystander when they were coming down pulled a cord that actually opened up a um, well it caused a deflation of the balloon and so they plummeted they weren't that high up I think they were only like five metres but dad broke his leg and one of the other members Terry Golding ended up uh, getting some burns uh, not massively bad burns but, but nonetheless burned I mean, he was released from hospital within a day but what's interesting with the broken leg thing my My godfather, Stan Green, was telling me this. They'd had to go in and convince one of their sponsors that they were actually a safe operation. And Dad had his broken leg from that, and Stan was accompanying him on this, and Stan, the week before, had broken his leg getting up to hijinks at a ball. So the two of them hobble into this office, trying to convince them they're a safe operation. They've both got these broken legs as they hobble in to see them. And they got the sponsorship. Phil Kavanagh's astonished that he survived that era. He began with no knowledge whatsoever. Phil's only qualification for joining the group was the tow ball on his car. I was invited to go ballooning because the Aerostat Society had a house near where I was working on a boat. I was a boat builder at the time. So uh, they saw I had a, a tow ball and they said, come to a country show, tow a trailer for us and free accommodation. I thought, well, what's better than that? So I did it. And, uh, and they were such an odd group of people, I went back a second time and then, then slowly realised that I could probably do that, you know, make my own balloon. And, and buying a balloon was out of the question because at the time in 1968, the cost of a balloon would be almost equal to a house. 
These days, you can set yourself up with a kit for around $22,000. And there's a proper procedure for getting your licence and keeping your skills current. It's all a bit tame for Nicola. I kind of feel like I wish I was around about 40 years ago ballooning in Australia. It, I mean, it was real adventure stuff back then because they really didn't know. Like, there were so many things that they just didn't know about. And yet, of course, um, like forecasting and weather and that sort of thing, which is such a huge part of ballooning, they just didn't have it. So that would sort of, off they'd go into a paddock somewhere and, and set up and hope for the best. But if Nicola had been around 40 years ago, she wouldn't have met her husband, Matt, her business partner, the father of her children and fellow ballooning competitor. I just started ballooning in Canberra. So I'd been ballooning there for about six months after I got my first job. And Matt had just come over. Yeah, he's from England, so he was working in summer in England over there flying balloons and he'd come to Australia, so do six months about. And it was just happened that... Love in a balloon. Yeah. Our eyes met over a wicker basket and the rest is history. But it was a great moment and it certainly defined my life for the last 12 years, you know, meeting Matt and and getting into ballooning just by chance, by going for a passenger flight as well. So So as well as a shelf full of trophies from Japan and Europe, ballooning has given Nicola the love of her life two children, a booming business and an incredible set of friends, which is pretty much what's driving the next generation of balloonatics. Brody Bowen is one of them. She's part of the ground crew for global ballooning in Victoria. So I don't even fly. I The way that I got into it was when I moved out to the Yarra Valley a couple of years ago. I somehow made friends with the guy that lives down the road and that's where the big base for the ballooning companies are out here. So I became friends with them and then pretty much the first thing that happens when you become friends with a balloonist is that you get asked to become retrieval because they can't do it without you, literally, so. And this is what led Bronnie to become involved in competitions to support a young all-female ballooning crew. It was the best, one of the best experiences of my life because to be working in a team like that and doing something so fun and so adventurous and completely out of the ordinary is just, it's so addictive and it just completely draws you in. So I'm the best possible friend for a balloonist because I love retrieving. I don't really love going up in them so much. It's not so much of a thrill for me, but I really love the driving, the going out in the morning, being in a paddock first thing in the morning, pulling everyone down and like getting the balloon on the ground and seeing how much fun they had while they're up there. It was really good. And it's really good. But for some, the science is what matters. I took a guy who was in our yacht club for a flight once in Canberra and he was amazing. He was a submariner, a gunnery officer on, on British submarines. And um, we took off and he said, oh, Archimedes had something to do with this, didn't he? He's, he's relating the physics of what's happening. We've just decreased the density inside the balloon, so it's, it's lighter than the surrounding atmosphere, so the balloon's going to rise to the surface. <laughs> tongue-in-cheek, very tongue-in-cheek, what he was saying. But then another time we went between two hills at low level, and, of course, we started to speed up, and he said, Vernuli comes to mind. <laughs> what Phil's referring to is the fact that air moves faster as passages narrow. It's a basic principle of flight, but what Phil's also saying is that different people fly for different reasons. 
Like Phil's friend, James's father Terry flew to figure out the maths. His correspondence with fellow members of the Aerostat Society consists of hundreds and hundreds of pages of calculations. Yet, 50 years later, when James himself went up with Phil to re-enact his father's first flight, it was to reconnect with a lost parent. James was eight when his father died and 45 when Phil took him up in that very same paddock. I just kind of thought that if I wanted to understand him, I should at least get up in a balloon and, and see what it was like. Now, of course, as a kid, I'd been up in balloons, but ballooning seemed quite boring to me. Like, So I really thought that I should get up in a balloon just to experience it again. And I guess in some ways uh, I, I did understand it a bit, but I found it quite... Um, I couldn't... I still came away from it not understanding the, the pure attraction. I mean, it was a beautiful time when I went up with Phil. It was just aesthetically, it was beautiful. Um, you had these contrasts of the angularities of fence lines and vineyards versus, you know, there's almost like a feminine softness of the hills around Canoundra. But all that said, I, 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 you know, it was good, but I still don't get it. I can't imagine devoting years of my life to it. It's nearly the end of our journey now, and I'm wondering, do I get it? Should I be devoting, like Nicola and Bronnie, years of my life to it? It just feels like a dream. You know, you take off and it's just effortless and you're just cruising along and you're adjusting your altitude and you're, you know, one minute you're on the treetops hearing all the birds singing and the next minute you're a couple of thousand feet in the air and just having this, this amazing kind of experience with the sunrise and, and the landscape and then back down again. And yeah, it's, it's really special. And I can see it. Because back in our basket, in Team Nicola, we're having a fine old time. But what goes up must come down. Time to check that braking system. So if you all look up, I'm going to put a big hole in the roof here. So this is our vent for landings. And don't forget to brace. Bend those knees. That's it. The world's back to the way it was before. Gravity's got us again. So as we pack up, I try really hard to hold on to that shift in perspective and linger a little longer with the idea of going forwards by moving up and down. It's something to do with the idea of drift, and it's important because... It's almost a complete opposite to the way our world has been heading. I mean, I think every most people would agree we're getting faster and faster. But you look at the words that are used to describe ballooning, you know, it might be drifting, floating, um, languid, directionless. I mean, these are actually either pejorative words or just don't seem to really be in sync with our times. And so I think if you're in control of a balloon in those situations, so you're still paying attention to that, but you have actually taken a almost like a, a deep inhale of life that's quite slow. I think it could be quite impactful over time. 
James McCormick ending Lynn Gallagher's lighter-than-air encounter with those extraordinary balloonatics. The co-pilot was Kerry Dell. This is Earshot, and I'm Miyuki Okiranta. And next week, we float off into RN summer. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.